I want you to take your Bible if you can. Take your Bible, put it in front of you, and then shut it tight. I want you to do that. Shut it tight. Now I want you to place it on your lap and just stare at it for a little bit. Stare at the Bible. Just look at it with it shut tight. Did you know this is the way a large majority of Christians see their Bible? It's how I did for a good 23 years. I saw the Bible like a really nice book. Actually, the first Bible I had was about three times the size. It had a gold cover and it had really wrinkly onion skin pages. I thought that, you know, it felt like that was a holier kind of page to read from. And I had it on my top shelf in my room, and it was right across from my bed, and I could see it. Because I really thought God was pleased that I had that Bible in there. I viewed it sort of like a, uh, not a good luck charm, more than that, a special relic that when it was sitting on the, when it was sitting on the shelf, it's almost like God's goodness was flowing out of it. I remember reading this book about this story about this four-year-old kid. Him and his grandma went on a picnic and he grabbed his grandmother's Bible and sat underneath a cherry tree and started reading. And she said, do you know what you're reading? He goes, oh yes, I'm reading the Bible. And she went up and she noticed it was upside down. you know. But he was reading the Bible. And I think a lot of people feel that way about the Bible. As long as I have it, something good is going to happen. Well, that's the way I felt about it literally for 23 years. And then a strange thing happened. God started provoking me. He started actually making me miserable. That's the best way to put it. My life was miserable. And in that misery, I wanted to find him. And somebody said, if you really want to find him, go to the Christian bookstore. Don't use that old Bible you have. Go find one you can read and start following along. And believe it or not, it was late November... And we started reading the Christmas story. And I remember opening up to the book of Matthew and just reading it. At first, just like the song, the song we sang, the, the names were weird. They were strange. In fact, I remember when I was a kid, I thought only monks who lived up in the mountains of some strange castle in Europe could understand this. But I began to realize I could. I could understand this. And that really not only could I understand it, but God started speaking to me. Did you know in a very same way, after the Old Testament was written, the last book in the Old Testament is Malachi, for 400 years this book was shut. You could say it like this, that God went silent. He went silent. Prophecy was no longer given. It was sort of the way that I viewed the Bible. It was really nice, but God wasn't speaking to me through it. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, God spoke. And that's what the book of Matthew is all about. It's God coming back to opening our eyes to his incredible story. So I want you to open your Bibles now to the book of Matthew. We're going to begin, the pastors said, I think it's, it's time to take some real focused attention on the book of Christ found in Matthew. Because this is, this is what we need. We need to know Him. In a world gone mad, as we said last week, in a, in a time period when people are at each other's throats and there's so much confusion, 
We need to focus on what matters. You know what matters? A man with royal blood. The man with royal blood. I think he's the only man with royal blood, honestly. And his name is Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Colossians 1.9 says this about Jesus. Verses 19, 9 through 19. I want you to be filled with the knowledge of Him. Paul writes, I want you to be filled with the knowledge of Him, the man with royal blood, in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Why? So that you can walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. When we get to know Jesus, Paul says, that's how we start walking in a manner worthy of the Lord. And when we do, we will be fully pleasing to Him. I want to be fully pleasing to Christ and God Himself, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to His glorious might, His glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints of light. Through this person, here's what Paul's saying, through knowing this person, we can be strengthened, we can walk in a way that pleases God, we can walk in a way that pleases God, we can have joy, not anger, not frustration and anxiety, we can have joy. And that we can know we are qualified, that means that we are invited and accepted to be in the, the saints of light, into the kingdom of light. He's come to bring light out of darkness. He's come to shout His word out of silence. And He does it in the book of Matthew. So let's begin. You could say this is more of an introductory message. It's just a genealogy, but you won't believe what's in this genealogy. It's pretty amazing. So I just want to read verses 1-17 through because this book ends the opening introduction of Matthew. Verse 1 says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Verse 17 says almost the same thing. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. So, this genealogy in the song that we sang is going to talk about all of the names from Abraham to Jesus Christ. But let's begin with the opening line. He says it's the book of the genealogy. This word book in the Greek is where we get the word biblos or Bible. Book. That's all the word Bible means. Bible means, the word biblos means not just book, but account. A record of things I want you to know, written down. That's what a Bible is. A written record so you can know him, the man with the royal blood. Genealogy actually comes from the same idea of Genesis, origins. Some scholars believe that in the same way the Bible opened with the book of beginnings, the book of Genesis, now Matthew's going to start again. The book of newer beginnings. Beginnings of the new story. So some versions call it genealogy, some say the line of, but it's really just showing Jesus' path from the patriarchs, Abraham, David, Jeconiah, 
down to Jesus and how his bloodline flows. He basically divides it up in three 14s. If you look in verse 17, he says 14 generations from Abraham to David, 14 generations from David to the exile, 14 generations from the exile to Jesus. Actually, if you really count them, it's 14, 13, and 13. Some uh, writers believe it's just a memory device so you can understand how it's divided. Some people believe you use the word 14 because of numbers. You know, you have the, the number 7 is the perfect number. So it's 14 is two sevens, 14 is two more sevens, 14 is two more sevens, so you have six sevens in the genealogy, and Jesus is the last perfect seven. I don't know if I like that kind of stuff, but it's kind of cool. It's neat. Actually, if you take David's name in the Hebrew, his name is actually equals 14. It's people who like to count numbers. Some, people, some of you like that stuff. I think it's a deeper reason why he broke it up like this. I think it tells the story of Israel. So the first 14 is from Abraham. Abraham is the progenitor of this first 14. Who is Abraham? He's the man that was chosen out of all the nations of the world. That's who he is. God chose this strange little man from the nation, the city of Ur, and said, I want you. You didn't do anything, but I'm going to use you to declare my name. So the first 14 begins the story of Israel. They are the chosen nation. The next 14 are from David to the exile. What happened to David in the exile? David unified the kingdom. He became the king. And then the, the names go from king to king to king to king. Some kings were good, like Josiah that Jared's saying. Some are bad, really bad, like Manasseh, really bad. But in other words, the second group is God took this chosen people and he wanted to make them a kingdom. And then there were some major problems, and it begins with Jeconiah. Jeconiah is the king that surrendered to Babylon, and they were brought to exile. They were taken out of the land, they were taken off the throne, and they were put to a, in the wilderness in this strange nation called Babylon, which is modern-day Iraq. So that's the story of Israel before Jesus came. Being chosen into a kingdom, and this kingdom abandoned, disobeyed, ignored, sinned, so they were lost in darkness. It's kind of like every one of us. It's the gospel story. And to me, until you understand you're lost, you're not going to want what comes next. Until you really hunger in the darkness, you won't appreciate the beauty of the light. Like, honestly, the reason why I wanted to know this book, and the only reason I wanted to know this book, because I was desperate. And hopefully, through this book of Matthew, you will want to know him. And you will, you will search for him. Because sometimes it's hard. I'll be, I'll be honest with you. Sometimes church, I hate to say this, but it's boring I have a tendency to want to make everything exciting. But even some of the promises you see today, when you let them sink, you'll realize God has designed this for the last 4,000 years, and Jesus is the only person who can fulfill this perfectly. So all these other religions, while those are nice, 
nobody fulfills this like Christ. Let me show you what I mean. So here's these three eras. I'm going to call them the era of Abraham, era of David, era of Jeremiah. In each of these eras, there was a massive promise given by God. A major promise. That at the time of this writing, the Jews were still waiting for. And I'm telling you, these promises are part of their identity. And they still didn't come true. In fact, that's what... Isn't faith built on God's going to... He doesn't lie, and so he's going to fulfill his promises. Well, these are massive promises. The first promise is according to Genesis 12, 1-3, God told Abraham, the progenitor of that first group, that out of you I am going to make a nation. I'm going to make your name great. And you are going to bless all the nations of the world, and people who curse you I will curse. Well, at the time of this writing, did you know that the Jews, this nation, was pretty beat up by the world. They were, they were being uh, ruled by Rome. And before that, they were ruled by Egypt. And before that, they were ruled by Greece. And before that, they were ruled by Persia. And before that, they were ruled by Babylon. Their name wasn't great at the time of this writing. In fact, the Romans kind of mocked them. They were almost a minority. Where is God? The promises to... David and the kingdom were massive. 2 Samuel 8-15, through God was so pleased with David as king, he said, David, I'm going to tell you what. I am going to raise from your offspring a king who's going to sit on the throne forever, and the scepter will never be out of your family. Well, there's a problem with it. At the time of this writing, do you know who was king? This guy named Herod. Do you know Herod really wasn't a true Jew? He was an Edomite. An Edomite were the people from Edom who were not part of the lineage of David at all. Actually, he was sort of dabbling. He was a, he was a Havsies guy. Yeah, he was interested in Judaism, but really he was a Roman. He was buddies with all the Roman leaders. So you could say, God has, at the time of this writing, God is so far away from fulfilling this because the guy in the throne isn't even of David's lineage. And he's really not much of a king. Just a title. He's really a governor. And then there was one more promise. I want, want you to go to this. Go to Deut uh, Jeremiah 24. Often we don't really hear this promise. Jeremiah chapter 24. So Jeremiah is a prophet who God spoke to Israel through and gave promises. And this is a massive promise, especially if you're a Jewish person. Starting in chapter 24, verse 1. After Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had taken into exile from Jerusalem. So exile means, it'd be like us being taken by, let's say China comes over here and takes all of our leadership and go, we go over, to, over the Pacific Ocean to China and a large majority of our leaders are living in China. That's called exile. They took people from Jerusalem, went through the desert, and made them live in Babylon. That's what this is going to say. So, Babylon had taken into exile from Jerusalem Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah. Together with the officials of Judah, so these are all the top men, the craftsmen, and the metal workers, and had brought them to Babylon. 
the Lord showed me this vision. Behold, two baskets of figs are placed before the temple of the Lord. So he's saying there's two baskets of figs. So imagine I have two wicker baskets and I'm holding them up. And in these wicker baskets, there's one group of figs and another group of figs. So this wicker basket, he says, one basket had very good figs, like first ripe figs. So they're thick, they're juicy, good figs. The other basket had very bad figs, very bad. So bad that they could not be eaten. So imagine shriveled, moldy figs in this one, really ripe, plump, juicy figs in that one. So Jeremiah visions has visions of these two. And the Lord said to me, what do you see, Jeremiah? I said, figs. The good figs, very good. The bad figs, very bad. So bad that they cannot be eaten. Then the word of the Lord came to me, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. Like these good figs, so I will regard as good the exiles from Judah, whom I have sent away from this place to the land of the Chaldeans. So what he's saying is, the good people are the ones I actually took out of Jerusalem and put them in exile because he has a purpose for them. And the purpose is 6 and 7. I will set my eyes on them for good and I will bring them back to this land. I will build them up and not tear them down. I will plant them and not pluck them up. I will give them a heart to know that I am the Lord and they shall be my people. I will be their God for they shall return to me with their whole heart. So that promise was given to the people in the exile. And that was not happening at the time of this writing. In fact, when they returned, they separated, the Jews separated into three major groups, the Pharisees, Sadducees, and Herodians. And each of them had massive problems. They weren't returned with their whole heart. They were very religious. They had commandments of men, but eh, their hearts were far from God, is what Jesus said. So you could look at it like this. This sort of reminds me of about four years ago. I can remember when the polar vortex came down. and In January, it was about 20 below for a couple days. You guys remember that? How cold it was? I can remember at 2 in the morning, I couldn't sleep because I, I literally, I'm, I'm an anxious person. So I literally believed that my, my heat was going to go out. I could hear, the, I could hear the, the nails popping in my rafters. And I'm like, oh no, my kids and I are going to have to live out in that cold. We're going to be frozen. And it just was like, is the spring ever going to come? Or it sort of reminds me of today. I don't want to go online anymore and look up the graphs of the curve. I just don't. I don't. Number one, I'm not sure if they're fully accurate, but it just seems like they get worse and worse and worse and worse. Is this ever going to end? Ah! That's how I feel like I'm a weird guy. You should see me in my room. This is what was happening at the time that Matthew was getting ready to write. The Jews said, God, I thought you were a God that answers promises. You haven't answered one promise. I mean massive promises. You don't understand how serious these promises are. And then if we go back to Matthew, that's why Matthew writes it like this. Listen very closely. The book of the genealogy of Jesus. And I know... Many of you know that name. There's something about that name. But there is something about that name. In fact, at the time this was written, Jesus was a very popular name. It's sort of like calling somebody today 
John, or Bob. Jesus was a very popular name. In fact, the name Jesus means God delivers us. God will deliver us, or God saves. You could also say it like this, that Jesus is the one who answers promises. He delivers God's promises. He is the deliverer. So if God said it, through Jesus will come the answer. 2 Corinthians says it like this. Chapter 1, 19-20. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, and Paul says, Silvanus and Timothy and I, we proclaim this name among you, was not yes and no, but in Him, in Jesus, is always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in Him. That's really what His name means. He's yes to all the promises of God. They are fulfilled in Him. So, let me show you how. What's His name here? And the reason why I put up there, you should look up this later, Jeremiah 31, 31 to 33, and 33, 14 to 17. Jeremiah said, the answer I'm looking for is going to come into a man who is going to be from the branch of David and who is going to come and put a new covenant in our heart. Somebody's going to come. Well, when Jesus came, Matthew calls him Christ. Or it's not, we, we see it as a name, Jesus Christ. It is the title of Jesus, the Christ, the King. Christ is a Greek word for anointed one. So he is the new king where Jeconiah surrendered the throne. Jesus has come back to the land to set up the throne because he's the new king. Not only is he the new king, but he's the son of David. Huh. So he is from the lineage of David who was given the promise that you're going to have a descendant who's going to reign on the throne for all eternity. Oh, and Matthew says he's the son of Abraham. Remember the chosen one? Through him all the nations of the world will be blessed. He's the blessing. He's the one that's going to bless all the nations of the world. So his name, Jesus, is more than just, it's a great name. His name is the promised one in whom the answer is yes. It's amazing because truly, there's nobody else that can come and fulfill all those things. So there's some questions I have. As a young le reader, I had these questions, and I think you might have these questions. One question is, why include the long list of names? Like, it gets boring to read those names. Like that song Jared sang, I hope we don't sing it as special music again. Kind of weird, you know. It was good, though. It was folksy. I liked it. But... Those names are kind of weird. They don't mean much to me. Why all the names? Warren Wearsby puts it like this. If a man suddenly appears and claims to be a king, the public will want proof. What is his background? What are his credentials? If you go and you, your parents die and your name's in the will, you have to prove that you're their child. Do you have any proof? And that's a simple little will. This is talking about the throne. The throne of David. So it matters. I'll show, you, I'll show you how important this is. Look in the genealogy. Look at how it reads. And watch how it reads. Follow this. Abraham was the father of Isaac. 
as his firstborn. Isaac, the father of Jacob, who got the inheritance. And Jacob, the father of, and it should say Reuben, really, because he's the firstborn. And in Jewish understanding, the firstborn would take the inheritance. But it goes right to Judah. Why does it go to Judah? And did you know Judah's kind of a weird guy? Like he did a really weird thing. And we're going to read, a, and we'll read about what he did with Tamar. You can read that later, but why pick Judah? Very simply, when Jacob was going to die, God gave him prophecies about his 12 sons. In Judah's prophecy, in Genesis 49.10, is the scepter will never leave your tribe. That's why Jesus is called the Lion of the tribe of Judah. Because he is the king. And Judah is the kingly line that was prophesied in the very first book of the Bible. And so it's here in its lineage to prove that Jesus fulfills that. Another thing that's interesting about this genealogy is it follows Jewish tradition. Ruth has half of this in her genealogy in the last chapter of Ruth. First Chronicles continues with that. So the Jewish reader, who this is written to, because Matthew was writing to the Jewish person, sees this and goes, yes, this is in the Old Testament. This is in my writing. And the point is, is did you know, I know this is a shock to a lot of people, but I want you to think closely on this. Did you know Jesus was Jewish? He was a Jew. And Matthew wanted the Jews to know he was the fulfillment of all of the promises of Judaism and his lineage is a part of their lineage. It matters to people. might not matter to you, but what this tells me, we're going to see in a second, is that there's nobody really else I can be looking for because they don't keep the same records like they used to. Only he can fulfill it. Second question is this. And this is really an important question. Because in lineage, don't you follow the father? Father had a son. Father had a son. Like even how Jared sang it, he said, and Jacob begat. Beget this man, and this man beget this man. But in this, there's really four embarrassing names, and they're all embarrassing, not only because they're women, but because the stories around these women are weird. Here's the names. Tamar's in there. Rahab's in there. Ruth is in there. And the wife of Uriah. Who's the wife of Uriah? Bathsheba. Okay, so those aren't just some idle names. So Tamar was... Judah's son's wife, his son died. He gave him his son, her other, his other son, to keep the inheritance going on in that tribe. And they didn't fulfill it. So she dressed up like a prostitute and seduced her dad, father-in-law. That's a bad story. Why is that in there? And then you got Rahab. Do you know Rahab was a prostitute? When Israel was coming to the promised land, she was looking out the window and she hid the spies but she was a prostitute. Why would she be in there? Some would even speculate she lied about hiding the spies. So you could say she's a lying prostitute. Then you have Ruth. Ruth was this Moabitess. She wasn't a Jew who married Boaz. A Moabitess, and Moabites were people from a land that were cursed. 
And she marries Boaz, one of the richest men at that time in Israel, who happened to be Rahab's grandson. And then you have the wife of Uriah. That's a bad story. And Uriah was a Hittite, another one of those tribes that was not too blessed. And Uriah was killed by David so David could have Bathsheba because he committed adultery. Why would, he, why would they include this stuff? Because not only does God tell the truth, but Jesus says at the end of his ministry, I want you to go and make disciples of all nations. And so people were, who were in his lineage were from all nations. And they were broken people like you and me who have bad stories. Because truthfully, every single person in this lineage has a bad story except one, Jesus, because he's perfect, and we'll understand that next week. So what can we learn? First thing we can learn is Jesus' coming is historical. It's not as First Peter says, or Second Peter says, it's not, a, it's not a cleverly devised fable. You can, you can follow the lineage of this man. That's massive. I just want to tell you one reason why it's massive. Because he lived in a certain time, at a certain place, he can save the world. In the same way a polio vaccine was invented at a certain time, in a certain place, it can heal everybody who had polio, because a man came at a certain time in a certain place and died for the sins of the world on a certain hill, on a certain tree, it's open to everybody in the world. Not it hinders people, it's actually the antidote to everybody's sin. He's historical. He actually lived and died for you. Second thing I'd say is this. What can we learn from this genealogy? God hasn't forgotten. I think he set the genealogy up to remind them that through Abraham there's a promise, through David there's a promise, through Jeconiah there's a promise, and through Jesus there was an answer. And so if he could answer those massive promises, don't you think he could answer yours? Some of you, I'll tell you, aren't too sure. But you know what Psalm 34 says? That I have never seen a righteous man go hungry. It's an incredible promise. If you pray to Jesus through him, all the answers are yes. Salvation is open for everyone. They're open for Rahab and Tamar and Bathsheba and me. And the fourth thing about this genealogy, I think, is this. And I just want just quickly to bring your attention to who the writer is. His name is Matthew. Matthew was Jewish, but Matthew was a tax collector. It was an office where they would kind of scam money off of people, and they were seen as the biggest sinners of all. And Matthew wants you to know about Jesus because, because he was invited to follow Jesus in the same way Jesus is inviting you to follow him as king. So he wrote this book to introduce you to him. And he's going to tell us all about him. And Jesus as king has come to reign today. He doesn't reign, what I would say we don't see him visibly. We believe in something that's called already, not yet. He already is king, but not yet. We don't see him face to face, but he's already set up throne in people's hearts. 
And that's what this is all about. This is the Lord's table. This is an invitation. It's an invitation for you to have God, Jesus Himself, the one with the perfect blood, to be your king. It's an invitation to be king of your heart, to rule over you. It has two aspects to it. It has bread and it has juice, which represents blood. Bread represents His body, which means that it was broken for you. It was punished to take away your sins, to get you out of the wilderness, out of the 400 years of silence in your life. And then the juice represents a new agreement, a new promise. The old promise was that if you sin, you die. The new promise is if you believe, He comes and makes His home in you, the kingdom. 